this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the very worst person in the world edition. It's Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. On today's show, we continue our march to the Oscars with The Worst Person in the World, a Norwegian film nominated for Best International Feature and for Best Screenplay. It's directed by Joachim Trier. And then Serial, the mother of us all in the podcasting business, returns with The Trojan Horse Affair about an anonymous letter that upended the lives of Muslims in Birmingham, England, while setting off an Islamophobic panic throughout the UK. It's co-hosted by Brian Reed, he of Shittown, a huge hit for Serial Productions, and uh, the first-time journalist Hamza Syed. And finally, the crisis in Ukraine promises to reshape our world going forward, pop culture and culture culture included. We will discuss with the writer Michael Idev. Joining me today is Julia Turner, Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, author of Cameraman with some inscrutable babble as a subtitle. Hey, Dana. Hey, how are you doing, Steve? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. I should say you're also the film critic of Slate. And Steve, if I could, just since you mentioned my book, I wanted to shout out to any listeners who are in Austin, Texas, that I will be there next week on Tuesday, March the 8th at 7 p.m. I'm showing The Cameraman, the Buster Keaton film from 1928 at the Austin Film Society. So if anybody hearing this lives in Austin and wants to come see me present The Cameraman and uh, and sign some books afterwards, then look at the Austin Film Society website and I'll see you there. Shall we do this? Let us do. Okay. Yulia the lead character in the movie Worst Person in the World, is now 30, turning 30, and she's never figured out who she is or what she wants to do. She's smart, easygoing, likable, and I think it's fair to say very beautiful, but finally a little little disconnected or remote, and one of those people who's burdened by capital T, capital F, the future, which is always there lurking but never quite comes for her. The movie is a dark quasi-rom-com with existentialist leanings, and it's directed by Joachim Trier. It's a meditation on love and being and about the price of not choosing one's own fate as time with or without our consent continues to pass. It stars Renata Reinsfe as Yulia, I might be mispronouncing that, who won Best Actress at Cannes. We want to play you a clip uh, with the very serious caveat here. The movie's in Norwegian, so it's hard for us to do, but you got to hear something, get the tonality of the film. In this clip, the main character decides she no longer wants to be a surgeon, wants to start studying psychology instead, and it's example of one of her many early career changes. 
clip is representative, though, in, in a couple of interesting ways. You'll hear how the film often moves from voiceover to dialogue, uh, and you'll hear some of the film's wonderful score. So let's roll it. It was then that it slowed her. Her lidenskap had always been the soul, thoughts, not the body. Chirurgy is almost like a very concrete, or almost like a snake. But now... Min lidenskap har jo alltid vært sånn det som skjer inni oss, eller tanker og følelser. Hva som et vindu hadde åpnet seg? Ikke kroppen. Herregud, hvis psykologi gjør deg lykkelig, så ja. Gjør det. Det synes jeg er skikkelig modbe. Jeg klarer ikke lenger. Jeg vil ikke lenger. Hun gjorde det slutt. Han var knust. Hun måtte bare beundre måten hun tok styring over livet sitt på. All right. Well, thankfully, Dana, um, Norwegian's one of your languages, so you can give us a quick <laughs> on-the-fly translation. JK. Okay. So uh, this is uh, this is quite an extraordinary movie. Uh, it's getting a mixed reception. Some people absolutely adore it. Some people detect the presence of the male gaze. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I think I'm somewhat of an outlier in this movie in that I don't feel super strongly for or against, but I kind of don't get why it made such a big splash. And I remember at the end of last year when a lot of people had seen it at festivals or in some kind of advanced screening and I hadn't yet, I was so excited to see it because it was making all of these 10 best lists and winning all kinds of critical prizes and won, as you said, that Khan acting prize for Renata Reinsva. And it was kind of on my short list for, boy, I better see this before 10 best of the year time. And then I saw it and I thought it is very pleasant to watch. It's a romantic comedy with a kind of, you know, very melancholy tinge. It reminds me in some ways of of like a, a good Sundance indie from the 90s or 2000s. It felt like a familiar kind of movie to me, and it didn't blow me away. Uh, and then there started to be this kind of backlash, as you say, and, you know, there's a, a very strong uh, anti, anti-worst person in the world piece from Richard Brody of The New Yorker, who tends to take contrarian positions on on movies and be outside the, the you know, orthodox framing of them. But I don't really agree with that either. I don't really take offense at this movie or find it horrifically sexist or anything like that. But I, I to some degree did agree with what Brody was saying about the main character who is in every single scene. You know, it's just, the entire thing revolves around her professional and romantic life and decisions. And yet... I didn't really feel like I ever had any idea of who that character was. Oh. I think it's a very underwritten character. And that this praise for Renata Reinsworth's performance is almost that in spite of the, the the thinness of the character she's playing, you know, she herself is an, is an actress of great charm and, and um, you know, has a lot of charisma on screen. But honestly, I, I, I kind of don't get the big deal about this movie, with one exception. The acting award I would love to see this movie win is for Andres Danielson Lee, yes. who plays one of the two boyfriends. This movie is basically about her kind of switching boyfriends, right? And the first of the two boyfriends, played by Andres Danielson Lee, who's a big muse of Joaquin Trier. He's been in many of his movies and has been in all three of these movies that Trier calls the Oslo trilogy, that this would be the last of, just loosely connected movies about young people in Oslo. He's extraordinary. And I won't give away the twist, but there's a there's a tragic development with his character in the last act, and he mm-hmm. blew me away. Yes, but I agree. otherwise, I felt like a lot of the, the, the moments in this movie that are being wildly praised as so inventive and imaginative seemed kind of familiar, familiar and a little bit sappy. 
Oh, I mean, I listen, Julia. I it, she is something of a pensive Scandi dream girl, uh, and a lot of the structure of the movie derives from having had these two boyfriends and switching between them. That said, isn't there something mimetic going on here? It's about a woman who doesn't know who she is. That befuddlement seems quite real to me. Yeah, that's the big question: is whether the shapelessness of the character is the point and a fundamental commentary on the difficulties of asserting a self at this particular moment in technological history or actually ever, or whether she's just like an extremely beautiful, charismatic person who is being placed in a bunch of Scandinavian tableau, uh, looking real good in a bunch of clothes and, um, it's it's sort of shallow artifice rather than actual depth. And I, I enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed watching it. So I was not immediately peeved or put off by it. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, she doesn't know herself, I think, is part of why we can't know her. And I found that frustrating, I think, ultimately, as much as it was sort of enjoyable. I mean, the movie's also fun. Like you, you hear, um, you know, Scandinavian best Oscar contender. I really had no idea what to anticipate. And the part of it that feels like a nineties Sundance indie, it's fun to see a movie like that. They don't make that many movies like that anymore. Like a, a kind of, um, cleverly crafted, interestingly structured, um, enjoyable from scene to scene rom-com like, they don't make them. We don't get to see I agree. those. Yeah. I, so agree. I think it's a very yeah. well done film in that genre. I guess what I don't quite get is why it was, you know, making well, so many 10 best lists and making people say, right. you know, her performance was the performance of the year. I, I feel like I, I wish there was somebody on our panel who felt that way so that what? they could okay. lay well, it out for me. I don't Do know. There is, a, there is a third person on your panel. Well, let me begin by saying I, I could. <laughs> Poor Steve, so ignored. <laughs> I know. Never gets a chance to talk. <laughs> he has never any oxygen left for Steve. But the, um, uh, I. So I want to begin by saying I, I understand how reaction to this movie could be highly, highly gendered. I mean, it, it the, the camera and clearly the director is in love with this actress. Um, the second thing I'll say is I am uncomfortable by the fact that the movie is co-written by two men um, and and yet is lovingly about this, this mysterious woman. Uh, I, I'm not untroubled by that. But let me say a couple things. First of all, I appreciate a movie that's about exiting your 20s and entering your 30s, which I think as lifespans have gotten much longer and affluence, especially in Scandinavia, continues to rise, is it is a uniquely painful time that doesn't have a unique name yet. Like, for example, adolescence or middle age, these transitional periods, uh, or for that matter, old age or whatever you want to say. But there, there's, I, I acutely felt what this woman felt when I was that age. I, to some degree, still do. I'm disposed to sort of existentially overthinking and then doing nothing and then becoming a kind of my own existential villain in some sense. Um, but to me, it, the, there are a couple things at the heart of the movie. Um, the three performances I find extraordinary. The two men are are great. Uh, the other actor, Herbert Nordrum, plays a very tough part. He's, he, you could argue he's underwritten. He's basically a barista entering the same age range as she is. Um, and indecisive about life. And his lovability is crucial to carrying off the movie, and he is lovable. I thought that in some ways, one of the beating hearts of the movie was this tour de force all-nighter shared between the two of them 
when they determine it, this doesn't really give anything away. They determine at the beginning of it, the way they meet is extraordinary. Uh, they're both with in a committed relationship with someone else. They, they make a pact at the beginning of the night not to cheat on these other people, which makes you the eponymous worst person in the world. They actually obey the pact while trying to test it as much as possible. And that, you, you have to, when was the last time a movie made you fall in love with two people falling in love. I just didn't know that it was quite possible, but it got past all of my defenses. I loved both of them. I love. I wanted them to be together. It's very primitive reaction, but I had it. And to me, it, it, that worked. And then I, the other real beating heart of the movie, Dane, I'll put it back to you, is, and we don't want to spoil it, is that last 20 minutes of the film, which is funny because a suddenly me, at, at that moment, the mimetic perfection of the movie, I would seriously argue for, which is a movie about a person who cannot decide and is fundamentally turned her own life into an excruciating waiting room, is forced by life to make a kind of decision. And the movie ends with her in possession of, I would say, her own being in a way that's so deeply equivocal, given the logic of the film. But And, and so, I talk about showing, not telling. I mean, that last image of the movie... I really thought that the last 20 minutes of the movie took a, a film that was, for me, somewhat on the fence uh, and turned it into the minor masterpiece that its admirers are are saying it is. Gosh, I mean, I really wish I'd taken all of that complexity away from the, the final shot of the movie. I think that we we agree that it's that there are developments in that last third of the movie that um, that elevate it, you know, that bring it above the level of just the, the pleasant romantic Sundance indie that we were talking about. I'm not sure that I felt that I had completed an emotional journey with that character by the end of the movie. I think the main emotional engagement I had with the movie was, again, with that with that side character. And at the end, because Yulia has been such a cipher, and I, I guess that's yeah. supposed to be the idea, but I can think of other movies about people who are struggling to figure out who they are, where you have some sense of their interiority, and with her I rarely did. So I think at the end when we're supposed to feel like, look how far we've traveled with Yulia, I just sort of felt like, well, she's still pretty and sitting around in a nice apartment in Oslo. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. I did. One thing I did enjoy with that, the way the film played with just how gorgeous she is, is when she's with the second boyfriend and she describes how she feels like she can relax with him and she doesn't always have to be the way she was that first night. Uh the, the the hair and makeup and styling echoes that like she's always got I mean just you know like what like her hair should become the Rachel of this decade her <laughs> hair is so fucking great the whole movie but she you know she she's got sort of those like perfect kind of wavy straight great bangs cool outfits like she's putting on a show for the fancy older boyfriend for the first half of the movie and then she becomes kind of a little bit, I mean, still gorgeous, but, you know, sort of a frizzy-haired sweatpants person with a shiny face occasionally with with the barista boyfriend. And so there's like a little playing with that. There's the, 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 that choice made the movie seem conscious of her gorgiosity in a way that it had not previously, but it still seems slightly underexplored. I mean, I just think if you mm. if you want to explore what it's like to be that person having those experiences, there would be some moment where she would say to a friend, by the way, she doesn't have any female friends in this movie <laughs> that I could see, to a friend or to one of her boyfriends to just say, like, I'm sick of being beautiful. You know, I want to move beyond this or like mm. this has impacted my life choices in some way. 
I mean, listen, I do think it's going to be a gendered response to the movie. I and it and and that's why mine comes with a mammoth asterisk. I mean, I was always going to be seduced by you know a Norwegian film. But Steve, if I could jump in there just to say, I mean, it certainly is not the case that I think this is some sort of male gazy movie that only dudes that like to ogle Renata Reinsva are enjoying. And in fact, there's a significant um, wave of response to it that I've seen among millennial women who have said, this captures my life perfectly. You know, I understand this character. I identify with this moment. Um, Many, many people specifically identified this movie with a generation, which I also didn't quite get. There's a little bit in the voiceover at the beginning. We might have even heard it in Norwegian. I'm not sure about social media and about how that impacts, you know, her, her desire to constantly change her hair and her job and her what she's studying and who she is. And then that kind of gets dropped. I'm not sure that I felt why this was about millennials specifically rather than any generation at oh, this I'll, moment in their development. I'll give you a theory, which is that is that they've grown up highly educated, relatively relative to historical standards, highly educated, affluent, well-fed, well-clothed, well-sheltered without a labor market and well-educated without a labor market to reflect their achievement and self-possession, you know, um, uh, correspondingly, and they are acutely aware of how previous generations exited the meritocratic pipeline into fairly meaningful and directed lives, should they so choose, have chosen. And that's not, option's not there. So being adrift at the age of, between the ages of 28 and God knows 40, I think is an endemic condition for that generation. I, I see the generational resonance there. All right. Well, we could talk a lot about this one, but this is one where I really, really want to hear some tiebreakers and and vociferous disagreement uh, or whatever from our our listenership. Uh, if you've seen the movie and have a feeling about it, email us. We wanna we wanna hear it. All right. Movie's worst person in the world, and uh, you can't stream it yet. Have to go to a theater, but I'm sure it'll be available soon to everyone at home. Moving on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening to this show right now are probably multitasking in some way or another. You might be driving, cleaning, exercising, maybe grocery shopping. But as long as you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing right now, and that's getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy, and you can save money by doing it right now from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. All right. Well, before we go any further, this is typically in the show where we discuss business. Dana, uh, you got some? Share it. 
I have some business and it involves me. <laughs> Our first item of business is just to remind listeners that they can get a great deal on the audiobook edition of my book, Cameraman. If you go to slate.com slash Dana, you'll be able to get this audiobook, which is read by me for just $13.99, which is $10 off the list price for the book. You'll also be able to listen to it in your preferred podcast app, so there's no standalone app you have to download and no subscription fees. This deal is brought to you by Slate, which means your purchase not only supports me and my book, but it also helps support the important and distinctive Slate journalism that you depend on. Once again, that's slate.com slash Dana for a special deal on my audiobook. Our second item of business, Steve, is just to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we will answer a question from a listener named Alan. He wrote us an email that said, and I quote, is there a piece of culture from a creator whose past work you love and enjoy, and then when their next anticipated project comes out, you were baffled and disappointed by how bad it was? So that's a great question. I have a few answers to that. I'm sure Steve and Julia do too. We will be talking about artists we like who produce disappointing work in our Slate Plus segment today. So if you're a member of Slate's membership program, you will hear that bonus segment at the end of our show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. When you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts and lots of bonus content like the segment I just described. Other shows also have similar bonus segments, including Slow Burn and the Political Gab Fest. And also, you'll never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. Last of all, when you join Slate Plus, you are supporting us, our work, and the work of all our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are really important for Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, what's next? All right. Well, in 2013, an anonymous letter was sent to the authorities in Birmingham, England. What came to be known as the Trojan Horse Letter alleged a conspiracy by Muslim educators to indoctrinate students with a strictly and conservatively Islamic curriculum. The letter was regarded right, rightfully, really, as a hoax and was set to be quietly ignored. But it was leaked to the press. What followed was a tabloid and political grandstanding frenzy that resulted in the firing of career educators and what appears to have been an Islamophobic panic. Now, Serial Productions has created a multi-part series. It's a partnership between the host and producer of S-Town, Shit Town, uh, which was a big hit for the Ira Glass factory, you'll remember, and Hamza Syed, a doctor from Birmingham and from the Asian, South Asian community in Birmingham turned journalist. At the heart, as they iterate and reiterate, is a mystery. Who wrote this letter and why? And I suppose you could say the scandal at the heart of the podcast is that nobody... Nobody seemed to really care about that question, so it's been left there as almost a kind of low-hanging fruit, uh, a mystery to be solved. Let's, uh, let's listen to a clip. So I didn't see how you could know what Operation Trojan Horse was or wasn't unless you got to the bottom of the Trojan Horse letter. Who wrote it and why? A few years later, I decided to go to school for investigative journalism. But my professor wasn't completely sold on a story I wanted to report for my student project, Operation Trojan Horse. This was investigative journalism. He wanted me to unearth something new, not rake over some years-old story. As a doctor, though, I'm familiar with the concept of a second opinion. So the night before my master's was set to start, I went looking for one. A doctor came to see me for a second opinion. One night in fall 2017, I'm in a theater in Birmingham. After my podcast S-Town came out, I went around doing some Q&As. Afterwards, people will sometimes come backstage to chat. And so this guy comes in, introduces himself as Hamza Syed. 
He said he was changing careers to become a reporter. He was beginning a master's program in investigative journalism the next day, actually. And he wanted some advice. He was speaking fast, like I might walk away at any moment. To be fair, I was told that I had five minutes with Brian Reed, after which I'd be squirted out the building. I did not know that. Anyway, Hamza ran through the Trojan horse story for me, elevator pitch style. Okay, well, we are joined by an extremely, extremely good and admired friend of our program, Willa Paskin. Willa, welcome back. Hi, I'm really happy to talk about this today. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you're a cultural omnivore, uh, TV critic, and of course, host of the uh, Dakota Ring podcast. Uh, It's great to have you back. So, you know, I think that clip conveys what is arguably one of the real strengths of the podcast, which is a, a a white and brown journalist together trying to solve this mystery. We get their disparate viewpoints through the friendly, almost kind of buddy cop dialogue that uh, um, they share with the listener. We're once again in the old format of Serial from the first season. We're trying to solve the mystery along with them uh, with all the sort of hardy boy Nancy Drew thrills. But I sense a but, Willa. You wanted to come on and voice a but. Well, why tell me what you like about this, and tell me what you don't like about it. I'm dying to hear. Well, you know, I don't know that it is a but. I, I really actually enjoyed this show a lot. I think that um, since listening to it, there's been a bunch of critiques that have sort of extra textual critiques of the reporting that I've been interested to read. And I also actually thought the series itself sort of stumbled in its final uh, episode in a sort of particularly pronounced way that I'd like to talk about. But but to me, what I'm really interested in is I'm interested in the specifics of this story because I think it does take a bunch of twists and turns that are honestly novelistic, uh, in a, and I mean that in a really complimentary way. But um, at the same time, it is enmeshed and admired in like this sort of ongoing pickle that a bunch of long-form podcasts about mysteries keep finding themselves in, which is what like what they're supposed to do about answering the, or solving rather the mystery that they uh, set out to what they're what the, what their responsibility is sort of answering the question that is the premise of their show and the ways that there seems to be like increasingly one of two answers which is kind of to like take us on a shaggy dog tail and then like toss up your hands and be like, what is truth? What is mystery? We'll never know the answer. Or to sort of overplay, uh, I've heard a couple podcasts that do this, sort of overplay what they've discovered sort of to answer something in a way that seems kind of fake. And what struck me as really interesting about the Trojan Horse Affair is I actually thought that they had, they sort of came up with a pretty satisfying reported feeling answer to their starting question and actually to some questions that they get to in the middle. And then they still tossed up their hand. And I'm just like, I just feel like what is the nature of truth is just Mm. becoming a little weak sauce cliche. And I wish the show hadn't ended on that note. That's not to say that I hope that doesn't spoil anything. I I don't actually think it changes um, sort of all the revelations and interesting things they found, but they do sort of end on a like, what is truth? Right, before we move forward, let's let's articulate the the problems that the podcast has run into because they're somewhat serious. That you know, the 
idea is effectively, and I think that they do a good job of establishing this, that this letter is clearly a hoax. And and even at first by the people it was at the Birmingham Educational Council to, to whom it was sent, regarded it as a non-starter. Um, but then the sensationalistic apparatus got a hold of it, notably the British tabloids and the British you know, uh, uh, conservatives, and began to trump it up and created an Islamophobic panic. But that's separate from whether or not there was at least some fire where there had been this dubious smoke. And uh, a variety of people have looked into this into the actual substantive charges, which is that there was, especially around the issues of gender and LGBTQ, there was a degree of, of I think we would all agree, unhealthy indoctrination going on. There wasn't nothing here. And by devolving virtually the entire podcast, at least in its first several episodes, on the single question of who wrote the hoax letter, uh, doesn't it divert from that in some sense? Because the letter is a hoax. It's a scandal that it was taken seriously. The person who clearly seems to have written it was doing it for, I think, deeply underhanded reasons. So in that sense, you can fit that to the mystery format. But the much, much more complex question of how you produce a sense of both belonging and ethnic and religious self-respect among you know, Muslim minorities in in uh, Christian or secular dominant cultures is a hugely complicated question that doesn't fit into a mystery format in the least. I mean, I sort of just actually think the show kind of did get it at a bunch of those really big ideas about the dominant culture and how and and like confidence and and how to be British and to be brown. And I, I thought it was really serious about the, all that stuff. But at a certain point, it 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 supplants. It's like at a certain point, it's it's hitched to this narrative device that like has to pay off in a way that I think can just be very frustrating for sort of like for the listeners and and maybe also for the people making the show and and uh, I I don't know I'm I'm sort of um I've I've talked myself into a circle but I'm curious Julia and Dana if you guys if you guys liked it or if you thought it sort of like just did something you'd seen before. I came away from it feeling like I had listened to a good story and learned some stuff, but I wasn't quite sure I trusted what I had learned. I mean, the one of the things that the show does is pit this veteran journalist against this amateur newbie to the profession and raise some of the questions that have been prevalent in journalism in the last decade, perhaps longer, about objectivity, about what we bring to our stories you know, about what the motivation is of even doing journalism in the first place. And, you know, those are really important questions. And it was somewhat novel, I think, to use this format to explore them. Uh, there's a, an episode where uh, Syed addresses a letter to a source in which he kind of tips his hand and uh, expresses that he, um, is, you know, that he has an agenda, essentially, in setting out to do this story, that he has specific things he wants to prove rather than approaching it with an open mind, which he then acknowledges was a journalistic mistake, but it, it opens up really interesting conversations about objectivity. And they grapple with those in interesting ways, but I felt that the way they discussed those questions and then the way they in, actually engaged those questions and how they were framing the story um, were two different things. Like the the explicit discussion was interesting, but it didn't feel like that question was informing the text of what they reported in as deep a way. 
Yeah, I wonder at what point the questions about this particular podcast become bigger questions about what it means to tell a reported story in this serialized cliffhanger format that, that Serial uses, which I think even the first season was was criticized for having done, right? For withholding information strategically so that you'll find it out in the next episode and keep listening. And narratively, this podcast is really well constructed. If I had listened to it going in not knowing that, you know, there were questions about things that it had left out or, you know, whether it was shape, trying to shape the narrative in a way that puts its thumb on the scale, I think I would have thought, the story is incredible. And, and I would have breathlessly waited for each new episode. And to some extent, I did. But going in already knowing that we were talking about it in some ways because of questions that had come up around this podcast. And in fact, although I wasn't on the show when you guys talked about S-Town, the, the earlier podcast of, of one of these two reporters reporting this story, that also, I think, had some um, credibility concerns afterwards, right? And questions about the consent of the subject to having having his life explored in that way. So going in knowing that there were this, there were some dubious journalistic practices possibly associated with the creators of this show really affected my listening to it. And I, 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 the places that it was trying to lead me always felt a little bit as if something was being massaged and left out, even if I wasn't quite sure what that something was. Did, did you, any of you have that same hesitation going in? I just, I couldn't hang off cliffs when this show wanted me to because of what I knew uh, about the, the background of its making. I dislike and distrust this format almost to a maximum degree. I mean, it, I, Julia, I'll pivot this as a question to you. You're an editor uh, and, a, and, a, and an editor of serious journalism. You know, there's always a conflict between the dictates of a narrative, which a creative writer, a fiction writer, a uh, screenwriter can just obey, can be obedient to completely, just tell a great story at, at any cost. There's no truth being sacrificed to telling a great story. And for a journalist, the facts that have to be gotten carefully right and so the Times, and I assume the LA Times, typically in their print format at least, are perfectly willing to sacrifice narrative thrills to the truth. The truth is just the, you know, completely immovable constant at the center of their mission. And um, I think Shittown was incredibly dishonest about what it found. It found that the mystery format fell flat uh, in front of the facts as they were on the ground. It turned into a very captivating portrait of an unusual individual that had to omit facts about that individual in order to carry off. Facts that a listener intuited, right, about the downsides of his, dark sides of his character. Similarly, Serial squeezed into a mystery format uh, uh, this tragic story of the murder of Heyman Lee and, and, and I think seriously downplayed you know, inculpatory evidence along the way. Uh, am I overreacting to the the format? I don't know if I'd say you're overreacting. I mean, the, the it's not as though, you know, the bards of serious journalism are just like, fact, 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 in the order we found them. There you go. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, like we, there, there's, there's uh, that tension exists in all kinds of formats as well, which I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, painting your commentary over broadly there, but um you know, the thing that I think is interesting is looking at the history of the serial group's output, right? There was the first season, which really played with this whodunit format. Then the two productions from Brian Reed, S-Town and this show, kind of stayed in that mode. But the other productions from Serial, the Bowie Bergdahl series, um, and I think the really stellar one, you know, the really extraordinary 
series about the courthouse in Cleveland, which is sort of like, here's what criminal justice actually is. It is not a detective story. It is a bunch of mundane bureaucratic problems um, have really run counter to it. And I think the uh, Nice White Parents series also used some of the tools of narrative storytelling to explore social realities in ways that had less of the hook. And I think we're just all getting more sophisticated about distrusting the hook. Um, and and so the, the old tricks feel a little hackneyed at this point. But just like to pull it out just a little bit bigger even than that, it's like, when is the true crime craze going to end, right? Like, like as sophisticated people, we're like, we've seen this. You start, you, you have a mystery and you take us along and it's kind of a little bit all manufactured and bullshitty. And yet the appetite for that, like, simultaneously continues to grow. And so there's some, I mean, Serial is just, in, it's occupying a weird space where there's a ton of podcasts, like a long form, I would say, prestigious podcasts that have, like the first season of Serial, you know, have a, a, like a sort of galvanic mystery at its center that people have been really taking different tacks about answering. I mean, Patrick Radden Keefe's Wings of Change, which is a very fun uh, long form series about whether or not the CIA wrote this hit song from a Eastern European rock band that I think like doesn't really get within like a hundred miles of actually answering the question, <laughs> but was a totally delightful romp is like, you know, it's about something that's less serious. So the fact that it just like kind of doesn't get it, like that you couldn't really write a reported story about it because it's so far from it. Uh, like, and you're just enjoying the thrust. I mean, is, is is it sort of pulls it off, even though it's like nowhere. And I've I've listened to other shows where I thought they kind of got like pretty unethical about sort of hyping the mystery, even as the reporting was leaving them in a totally different direction. And so, you know, this show, which is about solving something, and I think actually does a does a more satisfying job of sort of actually concretely answering some of the questions that it sort of has purportedly set out to does like find itself in this weird middle ground where everything about that is totally hackneyed (laughs) and they don't want to be like crass and yet the other thing where you're sort of like not overselling what you found is also totally hackneyed I I just Mm. it's like we are still in a content glut for mysteries but but what the meaning of that is is like it's just it's very exhausted and and just yeah. like you, but I mean, humans like things to be repeated for a really long time. So I don't think like true crime is going anywhere, but we are just, I just feels like a lot of like a turn, like we're just doing it over and over. Well, again. I like literally cracked a Michael Connolly book last night after reading a bunch of grief memoirs in a row. So I can't, yeah. I can't really, I can't really <laughs> speak about the end of the appeal of the mystery, but I, you know, hearing you talk, I think helped crystallize my own views on this, which is, I think the show was interested in the wrong mystery. Like, I think actually the notion that unmasking the true author of the Trojan horse letter was the key to the Trojan horse affair is itself a Trojan horse. And maybe the show is clever enough to know that. And that's why it's called that or whatever, but it did like, (laughs) I definitely knew that (laughs) the the precept that you need to know what, who wrote it is sort of a straw man all along but then the thing that I think would have been actually the more interesting question, which is 
what are the pros and cons and the correct and incorrect ways to allow for cultural differentiation in British public schools and, you know, the whole long history of the British Empire and everything that's going on with class and race and well, ethnicity in Britain today. Right, like, they, like it's right, it's not but, the show yes. is not actually that curious about those things. Well, it's and like, that's you, you're like so it should have been like nice. It's like nice British parents. <laughs> I don't believe that it's reflective in a meta way about how it itself is a kind of Trojan horse to get you to think about complex questions in the guise of selling you a, a mystery. But Willa, there is one problem with having you on with having you on this show. Do you know what it is? Oh, we just like went really long. We could talk to you all effing day. I've got to. I got to end this. I'm getting the throat right. slash from you know the the producer gods. But uh, Willa Paskin always. A total pleasure to have you on the show. Please come in and guest soon when one of us is missing. Uh, we love talking to you. Thanks for having me. I feel like um, I'm now going to like go have to like pester both of you, both of you, all three of you to like talk about this with me more because I'm just, I just was starting to figure it out. <laughs> but we'll do it again sometime. <laughs> you know what? It's a mystery. We didn't solve it, guys. No, we didn't. But it, was, but it was the journey. <laughs> stay, stay tuned for season two. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi point system, they never imagined somebody might try to actually snag it, but a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Okay, well, let me... Uh, begin by saying, um, you know, that uh, unequivocally, uh, absolutely nothing I say or we say is meant to be glib at all about the extraordinary struggle against tyranny now happening, unfolding in Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainians, uh, I believe, on all of our behalf are right now choosing between liberty and death in a way that we haven't been forced to in a very long time. In this country, we stand unequivocally with their struggle. That said, we are a culture podcast. And I think I just want to begin by noting the sheer improbability of the fate of the world, really, in some sense, hanging between a James Bond villain and a man who voiced Paddington Bear in Ukraine, um, joining us to discuss the latter's unlikely rise to sainthood and God forbid martyrdom is Michael Idev, the screenwriter and director in Hollywood, but also the editor of GQ Russia. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, and thank you for having me. Um, of course, I haven't been the uh, an editor of uh, GQ Russia since 2014. In fact, I quit shortly after they uh, annexed Crimea uh, for the first time. And now I'm seriously not sure there's going to be a GQ Russia. 
Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. That's important. But <laughs> uh, but you write that um, Zelensky is the most improbable national leader in the world. I think our listeners have a general sense of that. He's obviously been a, a movie star and a TV star. Um, talk about that improbability a little bit, and then let's get to the memification of his uh, heroism. Well, I think the story of Zelensky is less interesting for the fact that he's a former show business person because we've seen stories like this, uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Ronald Reagan, and Jesse Ventura, who went straight, I think, from wrestling to uh, to being a governor, etc. I think what's more interesting is that Zelensky's show business career uh, speaks to this cultural kind of a entanglement between Russia and Ukraine, because a lot of uh, his films and TV output were actually more Russian uh, than Ukrainian. And uh, he started out as part of this, I know it sounds weird, but comedy team, because in Russia, there's this institution called Kavayan, uh, which basically reimagines like sketch comedy and improv as a team sport, like a pro sport with leagues. Uh, where uh, kind of comedy troops represent cities and sort of battle for supremacy. Uh, so he represented a, his team represented a European city, but actually mostly made its name in Russia in the Russian language. And that team actually gave uh, rise to his production company that, <laughs> that in turn uh, produced the show that changed the course of history. Uh, the show is called servant of the people and it imagines Zelensky's character as this humble school teacher who uh, accidentally almost semi-accidentally becomes the president of Ukraine and then you all know the rest uh, servant of the people became the name of his political party and uh, and he was overwhelmingly elected uh, president in 2019 it's so so useful to have that context and that history, Michael. I'm curious to hear you describe how you think that background may or may not be playing into Zelensky, the public figure we're seeing in news reports and social media during this invasion. Well, I mean, he's incredibly savvy uh, in terms of uh, how media work and uh, how social media work. And um I want to choose my words carefully because uh, I don't want to sound like I'm describing a media phenomenon here just because, uh, again, as I sort of keep reminding people, we are having this sort of light fun, you know, the 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 way we usually deal with trauma by just idolizing people, but, you know, like, like Fauci during the uh, height of the pandemic. And uh, that's sort of what's been happening with Zelensky. But right now we're doing this to a person who might be murdered any moment and has put his life on the line. So uh, with that enormous caveat, uh, he is very media savvy. And uh, of course, uh, that's what makes for such a glaring difference between his style of communication with his own people, with the world, uh, these front camera videos on the streets and uh, his appeal in Russian to the people of Russia on the eve of the war. Uh, and, you know, on the far other end of the spectrum is, uh, um, you know, Putin's pathetic photo ops with giant tables, uh, you know, isolated, angry. And uh, um, you don't have to know the Russian language or even know anything about the situation, just the basic visual cues when you 
look at the Putin video and the Zelensky video will tell you uh, who's the hero and who's the villain uh, here. Like a three-year-old, you know, speaking neither English nor Russian nor Ukrainian can tell you that. And as I gather from what you've written, Michael, it's it's not the case that that Zelensky's mastery of social media or his ability to kind of crystallize the moment in that way was apparent before this invasion. I mean, it, this is sort of a new, not a new side, but the, the side of him that is an entertainer and, you know, someone who's able to to form public opinion uh, and, and, and create images, memorable images has come to the fore because of this invasion. Well, that's the thing. Uh, when he got elected, he was very popular. Again, he got elected with over 70% of the vote. But uh, he was this sort of uh, kind of sunny, positive populist. And uh, I remember speaking with um, sort of really kind of westernized and uh, cool and very socially active Ukrainian uh, young people at the time, sort of in the kind of in the beginning of 2019. And, you know, they were they weren't that excited about voting for him. He was kind of an acceptable plan B for them. And then his first two years as uh, president were, you know, his reviews were mixed. That's true. And it's funny that I think just two days before the war, there was an op-ed in the New York Times written by uh, the interim chief of Kiev Independent, uh, who actually said that Zelensky is completely in over his head, he's not prepared, and uh, it, it's terrible timing to have a president who values gestures uh, over consequences. And um, two days later, Russia invaded, and um, I think we found out, we all found out that the right gesture was exactly what, uh, what the country needed, and Zelensky knew how to, how to provide. Another angle to this that you write about, Michael, is is the Jewishness of Zelensky and how you see him as fitting into this this tradition, this comic tradition that in, in which you also include, you know, the Woody Allen of bananas and the Dustin Hoffman. I can't remember what Dustin Hoffman. Oh, it's in Ishtar. You talk about uh, yeah, it's uh, in Ishtar, uh, yeah. right? Yeah, the Jewish uh, wiseacres. Right. No, no, it's not just wiseacres. These are examples of like uh, kind of semi-nerdy Jewish characters who end up, uh, uh, you know, in uh, in the middle of a war. <laughs> That's the plot of Bananas yeah. and Ishtar and, right, and right. Tropic Thunder with Ben Stiller. You can sort of, um, you know, I don't think his Jewishness drives his politics or actions in any meaningful way. I think what it does provide is um, relatability to us, uh, to the American audience, because... He is an instantly understandable type. He is, you know, and this is why um, I have to go a little dark here for a second, but, you know, there's obviously an enormous, enormous disconnect between how this war is being covered and the amount of empathy that Ukraine gets as opposed to, you know, Iraq that was attacked in a similarly cruel <laughs> war of choice uh, under similarly flimsy pretext. But, and and part of it is because it's just so easy to parse for the American public and uh, I would even say the white American public to uh, to relate easier to, you know, people who look like Ukrainians with names like Alex and Julia. And uh, Zelensky's Jewishness sort of, yeah, plays into that, too, because, um, you know, you know how people are like casting who's going to fantasy casting who's going to play him in the Hollywood adaptation. That's that's part of that, too. Um, He's an understandable type. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's no excuse for, I mean, if these are human rights, they are human rights. They don't attach in some special way to, you know, Alex and Julia. But to to go, I mean, maybe to stay dark a little bit and go a little bit broader in a sense, there's this odd way in which, you know, this is a reminder of how a properly crafted public image can actually draw and endangered people through ultimate catastrophes. I mean, I'm loath to credit Churchill for all of the absolutely wretched aspects of his leadership. But, you know, it's not the worst analogy that that in trivial times, you know, we can bemoan public imagery and its degradation and its lack of connection to something real. Um, but, but when the chips are really down you need someone to stand forth and in that primitive way that you identify like Fauci and Cuomo I mean we need in a way as a survival technique we need to misidentify them as 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 heroic in a, in a way that maybe they're not but they can portray and it gathers people together and they get through and then the second sort of darker thought that I've had is you know we wander through life strangers to our true self in some sense and in a way it's better not to be forced to meet that person. And at moments of ultimate existential threat, that that's who we are in some sense, the deepest thing that we are when we're actually choosing between death and, um, you know, and, and submission in some sense. And that's, I think, it's a combination of both things, right? It's the improbability of Zelensky having this apparently other person inside of him and and his ability, because of a show business background, to portray it publicly, um, that's, to me, the most astonishing thing. Right. I agree entirely. I mean, it's one thing that um, he knows exactly what kind of, uh, you know, um, military green T-shirt to put on uh, when he goes out on the street to tape his videos, but that does not take away from the fact that he then goes out into the street and tapes th- these videos. Like the, the, the savvy and, uh, and the heroism are not mutually exclusive. And that's what we're uh, seeing here because the heroism is real and it's there for everyone to see. And I think that's sort of, that's the ultimate currency uh, that Zelensky has right now is um, you can't deny that what he's doing is heroic. It's literally next to impossible because it's right there for us to see. Um, And as for the other thing you said, yeah, um, I think the more threatened we are, the more stressed we are, the easier we fall in love. And, um, And the Trump era was filled with these little flare-ups of romance uh you know every i'm with her and nevertheless she persisted and just just all of these little things where we we would sort of hold up somebody and put them on a pedestal just because it made us feel um better for a second and that i think in in an extreme form is what's happening with uh zelensky and you know couldn't have happened to a nicer guy All right. Well, uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Brilliant segment and uh, illuminating. And I hope that we don't have to have this be a recurring segment, but we would love, love, love to find a way to get you to return. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you so much. 
I should say also, Julia, he's got a piece for you coming out in the LA Times about the image of the Russian baddie in Hollywood movies. All right, moving on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steve, I have another endorsement this week uh, sparked by my daughter's love of something. I think I've talked before on the show about how because of her, I fell for Stephen Sondheim. Because of her, I fell for Lady Gaga. And now her musical taste has expanded to include something that actually sounds like something I would have listened to when I was around her age, uh, which was that I walked into her room when she was working out the other day and she was listening to what I thought was some sort of 80s new romantic kind of music i either thought she was it was was it the smiths was it the cure was she listening to the psychedelic furs i couldn't understand why she would have come across that music and be exercising to it but it turned out that she was listening to this band called she wants revenge from the early 2000s have you heard of this this band steve i ask you because you're the guy on our panel who might know about mopey sort of um faux retro 80s music in the 2000s oh my god i don't but i'm so on this Oh please! She wants revenge. Okay, it's a it's a it's a duo, American duo, two guys. Uh, even though the, the name of the band is She Wants Revenge, and the specific album she was listening to was their self titled first album from two thousand six. It was literally from two weeks before she was born that this album came out. I just looked it up, and uh, and she came across it somehow. I don't know in her her explorations of Spotify or it got served up to her. And, and she's now really into um, She Wants Revenge. So I would say, I don't know it that well yet, because I just heard this the other night with her, but I would say the Good Starter album would be their first album called She Wants Revenge. And specifically, if you want to hear the single, I believe it's the most successful single from that album, though it didn't quite hit number one. It's called These Things. I think that was the song that was playing when I walked in on her. There's nothing to Yeah, it's got that mopey emo sound. It's like, I don't know what the band looks like, but you picture them having, you know, that one dark lock of hair hanging over one eye in a Byronic way. And um, and the lyrics are really poetic and dense. And I want to listen to this some more and explore them. But yeah, I think start with, start with the self-titled She Wants Revenge album. Oh, marvelous. Uh, Julia, what do you have? Uh, I have a callback and an endorsement. I forgot to talk about this last week, but uh, I'm sure you guys are all aware of Rihanna her pregnancy and her, you know, return to Instagram as a queen pregnant lady bedecked with all sorts of belly gems and <laughs> glamorous mm. Rihanna, mm. Anna, Rihanna, mm. Yana. N- nope. <laughs> but, <laughs> nope. But continue. Okay. Well, that's happening, Steve. Um, get, get hip. But, um, you know, so she's, she's, embodying this like glamorous celebrity romance fantasy forthcoming motherhood right and she also has this you know sexy lingerie line and anyway rihanna loves to embody love in some fashion on her instagram what did she celebrate valentine's day with but 
the very Lego flower bouquet that I endorsed on this podcast low several months ago that I did with my kids. Apparently, she and her uh, partner in some fashion did or received or got this Lego project together. And the notion of Rihanna making a Lego bouquet is just further (laughs) proof that she is the greatest. So to me, that's proof you're the greatest. You influenced the influencer. It's proof uh, I, she listens to the show, duh. <laughs> clearly the only way international phenomenon Rihanna <laughs> could encounter international phenomenon, the Danish Lego, would be through our show. Logic's ironclad, Julia. Come on. Legos. Rihanna heard it here first. Um, okay. But my endorsement this week, uh, to continue my self-mocking vein of being critical of the desire for detectivery uh, while also consuming it like the Dickens, is that I have finally gone back um, and watched Veronica Mars, which I never watched, and is the tart little early aughts noir that everybody said it was and is terrific. So if you're looking for a little... Um, kind of mental break show uh veronica mars is still holds up i'll also say given the recent controversies around joss whedon i'm a huge buffy fan i watched it then i've watched it since i i still love it but the gender politics of buffy have not aged well just with the passage of time additionally poorly with the deepening of our understanding of joss whedon this character and uh the gender politics of veronica mars have aged substantially better all right well mine is uh, i mean this may be old news to some people but i'm finally 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 getting around to watching the original danish swedish co-production of the bridge uh which was turned into an american show uh swedish one is about a bridge that connects you know sweet sweden and uh denmark uh malmo to copenhagen and due to an ingeniously plotted murder, both police departments of the two cities need to cooperate with one with one another in the persons of Sega and Martin. Martin, played by the extraordinary Kim Bodnia, who people probably know from Killing Eve. He's the handler of the assassin. Uh, and uh, anyway, and Sophia uh, Helen as Sega, they're amazing together. They have incredible chemistry, weird chemistry. Um, and it's just one of the great Scandi crime shows, one of the great crime shows. Uh, season one was gripping. I'm midway through season two. Those are the only two seasons that feature both of the principal leads from the original show, but they're both uh, home runs. I couldn't dig it more, so check it out. Have either one of you seen it? No, neither neither version. Julia? No. It's supremely worthwhile. It's just great premium TV. It's on Amazon Prime. You got to pony up, I think, but it's really worth it. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Dana, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. Please email us. We we love, really do love hearing from you at uh, culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. And our producer is Cameron Drews. For Julia Turner, Dana Stevens, Willa Paskin, Michael Idev, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, we will talk to you soon.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.